This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. We're going to be looking at Luke 10, verses 17 to 24 together this morning. So I want to read this and then we'll pray and ask for the Lord's help as we look through it together. This is God's word. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Let's pray. Lord, we want to hear and see this morning. And so we just pray now that your spirit would enable us, that your word would not return void. Lord, we pray that you would be our portion that you would be our great reward. Our hearts are so tangled up in other things, and they're always lesser things. And so may we see you as our satisfaction, our Savior, our King. In all your glory, Lord, with that Be the anchor for our lives, we pray. Build us up, Lord, as a people who love you. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. One author describes a very simple difference between uh, happiness and joy. Probably you've thought about that and heard about that some. He says, we can be happy with ourselves, but joy comes only when we get outside of ourselves to glorify God. Happiness may be self-centered, but joy is always God-centered. just want to encourage you to think about that and process that. The 72 disciples here, or the 70, depending on how you, you read it, return to Jesus to give a report about what happened on their trip with joy. Verse 17. They're celebrating 
God's work, that the demons were subject to them in the name of Jesus. So it shouldn't surprise us as Christians that our joy would come outside of us. We already believe that our righteousness comes from outside of us. It's alien to us. It's the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. We know that our strength comes from outside of us. It's from the Holy Spirit. Our hope comes from outside of us, not at what we see, not our circumstances, but the very promises of God. So joy is no different. And it is, I think, one of the main themes here in our passage this morning. And not just joy, but an escalating joy. Beginning with the disciples at this successful mission trip, then ratcheting up to the joy of their own salvation, and then to the joy of God and in God. His choice of the lowly for salvation. In this pinnacle of taking joy in God Himself. Jesus said in John 17, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Some of you may have been raised in a context where you heard a lot about hell and you're just really glad you're not going there. And that's how you might describe your Christianity. Kind of a forgiveness-only gospel. I just don't want to go to hell. Jesus says this is eternal life that they would know God. That's what it's about. Knowing God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See how that reorients us, doesn't it? It changes the way that we think about ultimate joy. It changes the way that we think about right and wrong and joy and pain and satisfaction and contentment. All of our aims and our dreams. That's what happens when we open the Bible and we submit ourselves to it. It changes us. It addresses us. It shapes us. So I pray that it would do that this morning. That we'll learn and see what, what, what should be and what ultimately does bring us joy and what we should celebrate. What Jesus celebrates. But I don't know what you bring with you today. I don't know what your experience of church or joy um, or happiness in your life has been. What you're living for today. But I can tell you that just as someone who's, who's walked in these shoes of emptiness and looking for salvation and help and hope and all the wrong things, how empty and sad and hollow it is. Giving myself, myself, to everything the world could offer. I've done that. I've walked that road. The thrill, the buzz, the sensuality, it, it is good and then it ends. It's good and then it ends. And you're empty and left alone. I just want you to see that Jesus is offering you something better than that that will never end. And you're not going to find that in yourself, no matter how deep you look. You're not going to find it in any accomplishment that you make at work, in your career, or in ministry. You're not going to find it in living vicariously through your children. You're not going to find it in fulfilling your lusts. You're going to come back and back and back and back. You'll only find it in God. That is where our text is going. And so let's go there together. This text teaches us that we are created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is eternal life, that you know God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we want to follow these themes of escalating joy 
in our passage all the way to the top, pointing these four, I want to point out four aspects of joy that Jesus mentions here. If you want to know them up front, here they are. I'll go them, I'll mention them as we go through. Uh, they are number one, joy in the fall of Satan. Number one, joy in the fall of Satan. Number two, joy in our salvation. Joy in our salvation. Number three, joy in God Himself. And then number four, joy in spiritual sight. May the Lord reveal Himself to us. You know, that's what this text, text teaches. That there's a dependence that, that He must reveal Himself to us. So let's look at this first aspect of joy that we see. Number one, joy in the fall of Satan. As a reminder, we saw last time that Jesus deploys this larger group of disciples to go out and prepare the way for his arrival in some nearby places. He pairs them up, sent them out with um, instructions to travel light, no money bag, no knapsack, no extra sandals, to kind of seek out this perhaps person of peace that they would find in a, in a village or in a, in a home, that they would stay with them during their ministry. And as they went, they're to pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out even more workers into the harvest fields, for the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Jesus sent them out as lambs among wolves. That doesn't sound like a great pep talk before your mission trip, but that's what he told them. He's teaching them to be dependent upon God and upon the shepherd that would protect them and provide for them and lead them. So I don't know what you would have expected when they returned, to be bruised and bloody, some of them missing, discouraged, but that's not what we find in verse 17. Look there again, the 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Joy and victory categorizes their, their attitude and their, their ministry. We saw in, in chapter 9 that Jesus, uh, when this similar thing happened with the 12, he sent them out. He gave them particularly authority over, over demons, the power of the demonic realm. And we assume that the same is true here now with the 72 this larger group that goes out in pairs, especially because of what Jesus says next. Look at verse 18. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I, I have given you authority to, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, they weren't going out literally walking on snakes and scorpions barefoot. Some in Church history and even currently today have take passages like this, taken those passages to mean things like that. I don't think that's what Jesus means. Um, I think he's referring to a much more cosmic and spiritual reality. Uh, scorpions and snakes, I think, are illustrations of kind of a hostile creation that is fighting back, you know, because of because of the fall, fighting back and, and harming and, and attacking. Uh, but they do also show up in Exodus. When God is rescuing a people from slavery and delivering them uh, to himself to worship, uh, we read in Deuteronomy 8, 14, the Lord your God brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. And we've seen as we've looked at Luke's gospel that there are these Exodus themes that are there, that Jesus is leading a new exodus, a better final exodus of his people out of, out of sin. And he's doing that. We, we see that those, those phrases of the way used often in Luke and in other places, just like there was a way for the people to go over the, through the Red Sea. There's a way of salvation. Early Christians are called the way. 
So here Jesus is extending His authority over Satan and demons to His followers and saying, you will tread on the enemy. You will tread on scorpions. So he's, so he's including them. And this, this language of authority and dominion is interesting. It, it echoes uh, uh, Daniel chapter 7. If you go back and think about Daniel 7, what's happening there, there's this, this vision of the ancient of days that is, that is giving authority to a son of man, the son of man who is ruling then over the kingdom. In Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14, but then later in that passage, we read this in Daniel 7, 27, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. So his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So there's this giving of authority then to the people of the Most High. And we see an example of that happening here in Luke 10. And Jesus is alluding to, isn't he, his victory over Satan. When he's in verse 18, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Think of that picture. What do you think of when you think of lightning? This, this picture of dazzling brilliance and power that is, come on, comes on strong and then has suddenly disappeared. It's snuffed out. Some read this here as Jesus reflecting on him kind of in his pre-incarnate state, seeing Satan fall in his rebellion against God. I tend to see it more kind of related to this immediate context of what's happening here. That We, we said that Luke's main point in writing his gospel, we remember in chapter 1, verse 52, is that he's brought down the mighty from their thrones and the exalted of humble estate. And so I think this language here of Satan falling from his high place is meant to remind us of Isaiah's words of the king of Babylon and in Isaiah 14, 12, and kind of his motivation of his proud heart that God brings him down low. So Jesus is kind of identifying Satan as that proud king who's brought low, and he falls from his exalted place of pride, but he also connects it with the ministry of the 12. They're coming back saying, look what we did. The, the, the demons were subject to us. And Jesus says, yeah, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Unbeknownst to you, to your ministry, the proclamation of healing and, and the gospel is sending shockwaves through the, the, the unseen cosmic realm. Benjamin Glad argues that in Jesus' defeat over Satan in the wilderness, which you saw in, we saw in Luke 4, where he resists all the temptations, Satan is cast down from his high place of authority and pride. And then here it's emphasized again when he sends out the 12 and the 72, and then he will be defeated. That defeat is secured at the cross itself, where he, Paul says, disarm the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame at the cross. The author of Hebrews says that through death he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So you see this, this defeat of Satan happening, and then now the disciples can tread on, on serpents because the seed of the woman who's come to crush the head of the seed of the serpent is there. And on the last day, that victory is consummated as Satan himself will be thrown into the lake of fire. And so we too should rejoice in this. In this amazing victory that extends to not just the 12 or the 72, but even to us, his own people, to the church. Paul says in Ephesians 3, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So the demonic realms 
take note, they quake at the advance of the kingdom of God. And we should rejoice in this. We should rejoice, beloved, when the word of God is preached. When a lost sinner comes home and turns from their sin and puts their faith in Christ. We should rejoice when a secret sin that's been harbored has been brought to light. When a Christian stands up against temptation and lust and the world's pleasures. When you say no to bitterness. When you're faced with life's disappointments and trials. And instead, you walk in joy that endures. When you're faced with a hard providence in your life and you respond with quiet trust in the God who ordains all things and who is good, not a complaining spirit, we rejoice in these things as we hear about these things in our own church. These are evidences of the kingdom's victory. And we can rejoice even when God uses us for his kingdom purposes. When we see our church grow in in numbers or in love and unity and holiness. When we share the gospel and someone hears and believes. When we share a word from scripture and someone's encouraged. I'm always regularly amazed when people come to me and say they were encouraged by something I said. I think we should be that way. Rejoicing. Rejoice that Satan is defeated. Sing that he's defeated. That he can cause no lasting harm to us. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Be thankful that I won't sing that. Jesus wants his disciples to think about this joy and celebrate this joy, but he wants to take us deeper into an even deeper and more abiding joy. And that's what we see in this next aspect of joy. So number two, joy in our salvation. It seems like in the midst of this report of celebration, Jesus redirects the affections of the disciples. I don't think he's rebuking them. I think he's pointing them to a deeper joy. Verse 20, nevertheless, he says, do not rejoice in this, that the serpents are subject to you, the spirits rather are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus, so Jesus wants us to be full of joy. He wants us to have joy in seeing him work through us, through our church, through others, but he wants our joy to be on a solid foundation that will never be moved, that could never drift into idolatry or Uh, some kind of performance-driven equation that tosses us back and forth depending on our circumstances? What's that foundation? It's grace. It's grace. Namely, that your names are written in heaven, in the book of life. And you didn't write them there. I didn't write them there. God wrote them there. This is a concept that was rooted in the the culture of the ancient Near East. Kings who who ruled great empires loved to keep long lists of their subjects. Even in the Gospel of Luke, we've seen Caesar Augustus issuing a decree that a census would be taken in the Roman world. Typically, having your name in the book of a kingdom, it serves as proof of your citizenship. In New Testament times, the Roman officials would keep this detailed register of those that belonged to their city-state because they're the ones who had the full rights of membership in the community. 
The person whose name was in the book was entitled to property and entitled to protection. And so, beloved, in Scripture, when we see your name being written in the book, it means that you belong to the high king of heaven. It means he knows and remembers you, and you belong to him. He's keeping an accurate record of your citizenship in his everlasting kingdom. It means you have all the privileges of the kingdom. Daniel says in Daniel 12, but at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 is speaking of the heavenly Jerusalem. He says this to the innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. There's a role. Philippians 4.3, Paul is saying he's thanking his true companion, the, these women who have labored side by side with him in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And then Revelation 3.5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So here's the message. More than the power that the Lord shows through your ministry or my ministry, more than the success that comes or doesn't come, more than the titles that you have or don't have, more than the results, the, the conversions, the people group reached, the missionaries funded, the disciples made, more than how healthy our church might be or, or not be, how many attend on a Sunday, how much ministry we do, how well we love one another, how wonderful it is to sing together and encourage each other. Rejoice in this, that your name is written in the book of life, that you are saved. That is a miracle that never gets old. There's no expiration date on that truth. Here's what I mean. There will be times when ministry doesn't go well, when there is opposition, when our health fails us, when our marriage and family are in trouble or in shambles, when church is hard, when relationships fracture and sometimes end, when people that we love die, when we're discouraged and so discouraged we don't know where to turn. All mission trip reports don't end up like this one. So if our foundation of our joy is in these things, it's, it won't be eternal. It, it won't make it through the storms of life. In fact, Jesus says some will come to him in the last day, bringing these activities to his attention. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will... Declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Revelation 20, verse 15, just as a, just an underscore here. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. So Jesus says, don't rejoice in these things ultimately, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. That as the old hymn says, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. 
And you say, well, I don't know if that sounds very assuring because I don't see this book of life. I can't go proofread it. I can't go have a look at it. I, heard, I read one story this week of a little boy who, who came to trust Christ but was really wondering about this book of life thing and he kept praying saying, Lord, if you could just, just as a reminder, just want to put this on your to-do list, go ahead and put my name in the book of life just so you don't forget, just reminding him. How do we know our names are in the book of life? Well, it's because we believe the gospel. If you believe the gospel, if you believe Jesus Christ, the good news, your name is written in the book of life. Those that know and understand that they've sinned against a holy God and deserve judgment, those that have turned and are turning from their rebellion and self-centered life and putting their faith alone in Jesus Christ who lived a holy life for us, his righteousness for us, and died a perfect death, substitutionary death for us to take away God's wrath. Friend, is that you? Are you trusting in Jesus? Not doing things. Are you trusting in Jesus? Trust Him now. Trust Him now. And if you're trusting in Jesus, rejoice because your name is written in the book of life. And he will never blot it out. Eternal life, forgiveness of sins, future resurrection of our bodies, rejoice. There's a third aspect of joy here I want us to see. Joy in God himself. And it begins with his sovereignty. Okay, it begins with his sovereignty. Look at verse 21. In that same hour he rejoiced, this is Jesus, Jesus is rejoicing. We should just take note. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus is rejoicing. He is thanking God What's he thanking him for? Hiding these things, these things of salvation from some, the wise and understanding, and revealing them to others. Little children, infants, babes. So I think in the immediate context, we could say, yes, wise and understanding are likely referring to here the religious leaders who are, who are proud and and, and, and they're rejecting Jesus. And the little children, obviously, it's these disciples, right? It's these uneducated fishermen. It's the tax collector. Friends, when we come across passages like this, we don't want to dodge them. We want to see them for what they are. Think about these controlling texts in Luke's gospel. Simeon prophesied of Jesus that he would be appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel in chapter 2. And he would bring down, again, the mighty from their thrones and exalt those of humble estate. See a great picture of that here, even in salvation. So one of my prayers for our church is that we would come to places like this in the Bible and just do what Jesus does. We're going we're to take what he's given us in the Bible and say, Jesus is rejoicing and that means this is good and I want to rejoice in this as well. It's okay to have, have struggles and try to understand these things. Absolutely. 
we should, but not to argue or push back, but ultimately to submit. We've said over and over that when we stick with Scripture, you see this wonderful balance between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility together. It is all over the Bible. Our our, our women in our Bible study this week and Romans are thinking through it, Romans 8. It's all over Scripture. Notice it here. Jesus sends out workers into the field to collect the harvest. They're preaching. They're praying for more workers. They're going. But then he acknowledges that it's the Father and it's the Son who reveal and hide the message. The one that effectually brings people to himself, opens eyes and ears. In Matthew, you know this, this verse well. Jesus says, come to me all who weary, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All come to me. Friends, that's the rest that's on offer for you today. But then right before that passage in Matthew 11, Jesus is saying the the same thing we're reading here in Luke. He's praising God for his sovereign hand in election. That book that we're talking about, having your name written in the book, John tells us in Revelation 13.8 that that takes place before the foundation of the world. What do we do with that? We do what Jesus does. Rejoice. Rejoice. The doctrine of election is a doctrine that produces great joy. And this, this word joy carries with it the idea of exuberant ecstasy, complete exultation in the fullness of joy. Edwards says that this is the most exultant description of Jesus in all the Scripture. And then Jesus mentions his own sovereign part here in our salvation. Look at verse uh, 22. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So we come to the Father in saving, joy-producing, the saving, joy-producing way because it's been revealed to us by the Son. That's what Jesus says. And so come to Him. Come to Him. How do we come to Him? Like a child. Like a baby. Trusting Him for what He says. Not as someone who's got it all figured out. Childlike trust is what Jesus is calling for. Reaching your hand out to him because you're needy. Would you do that? There's no IQ test. There's no Bible exam. Trust. Joy. But then there's more. This joy isn't just the highest human expression of joy. It's actually entrance into the joy of God and the joy in God. Joy in God. Did you just notice how Trinitarian this passage is? How high and Christ-exalting. We have Jesus, God the Son, rejoicing in God the Spirit, verse 21, and thanking God the Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for His gracious will to save sinners. Just look again at verse 22, that first phrase. Let that just land on you. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to him by the Father. All things. We need to expand our vision of Jesus, most likely, to understand what the Bible says about him. The Lord of heaven and earth is who he's thanking, and he has handed over all things to Jesus. This is probably Luke's strongest statement about the divinity of Jesus in the the entire gospel. All things. 
beloved. All things belong to Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of creation. He holds all things together with the word of his power. He feeds the birds. He stirs the wind. He made you and has ordained every one of our lives, even before the days of our lives before we've lived them. Not a single atomic particle in the entire universe is outside of his supreme lordship. But then he goes on. He says, no one can know the son in the way the father knows the son. Just like no one can know the father as the son knows the father. There's this picture of this eternal relationship of unique oneness and joy that is above our station, above our comprehension, above every category of beauty and glory in our finite minds. So there's a depth here that we can only imagine. But then, right, you see what he does? Jesus opens the door that, to that kind of knowledge, that kind of love to you and me, to us, to his people, to know God like he does. Verse 22, no one knows the Father except the Son and, and <laughs> anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Do you see, do you see that? By the grace of the Father, according to the will of the Son, through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, we can know the living God. I don't know if that's what you're thinking when you have a quiet time, but you're talking to, praying to, sitting with the living God. This is why Jesus came into the world, that we would enter into his joy, the joy of knowing and loving God. As soon as the uh, David Goodwin, Goodwin says this, as the son of the father, he enjoyed unique knowledge of the intimate relationship that lies at the heart of the Godhead. And with that unique knowledge, the unique privilege of communicating it to whomever he pleased. So God is sovereign and good. He is all satisfying. He is glorified when we find our greatest joy and satisfaction in him. And that doesn't happen by our intellect or even by our will, but by his grace for his glory. Okay, so how do we put all that together? How do we reconcile some of these uh, realities? And listen, I think that's a, a good instinct to have, okay? Kind of thinking logically, fitting these things together. We, can, we should talk about those things and think about those things, but I don't think it's the first instinct. The first instinct should be what Paul does in Romans eleven thirty three, 33 and following, praise, childlike praise back to him. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. 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 That's, that's a God worth worshiping. These realities just drive us to worship away from ourselves to the glory of God. What joy is found here? An eternity of joy, unending joy that no one can take away from you. One last aspect of joy that we see, and we'll just mention this briefly, 
It's almost like a benediction. Number four, joy in spiritual sight. Joy in spiritual sight. Jesus turns now just directly to his disciples. Maybe he's been referring to the crowd up to this point, the larger crowd. Look at verse 23. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. As one author put it, the preparatory centuries had come to an end. The kingdom of God was at hand. And so Satan is falling like lightning. Demons are subject to the authority of the king and his disciples. And just think of all the prophets and the kings that longed for this day, who who had prayed for the coming of the Messiah, the the Christ. Uh, Riken says this, he says, Imagine what Jeremiah would have given to see the righteous branch raised up from David, or Isaiah to see the son conceived by the virgin, or Micah to see the baby boy in Bethlehem. Imagine what David would have given to see his greater son crush the head of the serpent and deliver his people, or Isaiah to see the suffering servant wounded for his transgressions and bruised in a rich man's and buried in a rich man's tomb. What would Job have done to see his risen Redeemer standing on the earth? Mighty Kings and faithful prophets long to know this Christ who is standing before them. But who would have thought that standing before them, when they looked at Jesus, they would be seeing God Himself? John 14, 8, Philip said to Him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to Him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know Me, Philip? Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? What a blessing. What a privilege to see what they were seeing. And then how much more for us who stand on this side of the cross and the ascension, who await his second coming. Jesus told Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What a joy, having our names written in heaven and greater still, knowing the Father, the Son, and Spirit, knowing that God is rejoicing over us. You see, Jesus rejoicing over the salvation of His people, over this redemption, over this relationship that is now extended to to sinners. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. So friend, just don't waste this amazing, unique moment and and, an unimaginable blessing to know your Creator through Jesus Christ. So, come, weary sinner, come to Jesus. Come without money, without price, without anything to commend yourself to Him. All we bring is our need. As the hymn says, let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness of fitness fondly dream All the fitness He requires is to feel your need of Him. And then it says, this He gives to you. This He gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. Even our understanding of our need is a gift. So He's our Redeemer. He's our Revealer, Savior, and Keeper. And there is increasing and escalating and eternal joy here in knowing Him. And that joy, friends, never ends. John saw a glimpse of it 
that we never get to the bottom of this joy, Revelation 5.13. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that about covers it, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, would you form us now? And by that, I just mean our desires, our affections, um, Lord. And we confess that they are often all over the place. And we, those of us who know you, Lord, we want to know more of you. And so thank you for your word and the way that it just stirs us up and shows us what's there. And we just pray you would show us more. And we pray that you would give us grace to, to put to death Lord, the things in our lives that we give so much um, to and just see them as in their appropriate place. And we would find joy in you, in all those things, but ultimately in you. And so we thank you for the opportunity to be together and we pray that as we, as we hear the word and as we sing the word, that we would be uh, applying the word. That we'd be asking these questions of our own heart and our own self and not, not thinking about how it applies to others or what's going on, but with us. So even in these, in these last moments, as we return our praise to you and, and glorify you, would you be working in and through your word by your spirit to glorify the Son, Jesus? We ask this in his name. Amen.